We would like to welcome you to another episode of Reading Across the Curriculum, a book talk series on our Changemaker Conversations in Education podcast channel of the Alberta Regional Professional Development Consortia, or ARPDC. Our focus is on providing educators in English language arts K-12 with information, books, and resources through conversation with outstanding educators, authors, and librarian book talk souls all in support of our work with students. As always, we welcome your suggestions for guests on our podcast. You can email us at rick.gilson, G-I-L-S-O-N, at arpdc.ab.ca. I'm Rick Gilson, Director of the Southern Alberta Regional Office of ARPDC, and my co-host in this series is the great Charlie Craig of both the Central and Northeastern Regional Offices of ARPDC. Before we introduce our guest, which is uh, Irene Heffel, a professor at Concordia College and uh, a colleague of ours in our work with professional learning, uh, Charlie is going to share a, a little bit of a land declaration. Charlie. Thank you, Rick. Hello, everyone. Uh, no matter where we are in Alberta, the land that we live and learn and play on is part of a formally negotiated treaty. The land is significant to all Indigenous peoples, including First Nations, Métis, and Inuit populations within Canada, both historically and presently. Land as kin is an important concept for all of us to understand as our relationship with land is reciprocal in nature. We cannot survive without land stewardship as demonstrated by the first stewards of the land. We highlight this history knowing that relationships and partnerships based on respect with Indigenous peoples of this land are an important, are an important piece of the process uh, for truth and reconciliation. Thank you. Our guest today is a resident of Edmonton, uh, Irene Heffel, is a literacy consultant and educator with over 35 years of experience at all levels of education. She has worked with both elementary and secondary teachers to implement best practices in curriculum assessment and backward design with a focus on reading and writing instruction and reading across the curriculum. In addition to being a consultant with our ARPDC team, Irene is currently a professor at the education faculty of Concordia University in Edmonton. In addition to sharing some of your thoughts with how teachers in all subjects can mindfully talk about the elements of literacy as it impacts their work with students, we hope to identify resources, tried and true, and new books and other formats that can support the work in the classroom. As always, Irene, our first question to all our guests is, what are you currently reading or recently finished reading in both your personal and professional life? Thank you very much, Rick. Um, I have been uh, looking at books that encourage engagement uh, and motivate our students. Things about intrinsic motivation that I think are really critical, especially at this point in, in our history. Um, I'm a huge mystery buff, so I catch up on books by Michael Connolly and James Patterson and I make sure that I read all of all of those. I love a good mystery, um, so that's that's part of part of my personal reading. Um, I've looked at a couple of, of uh, resources. The Motivated Brain is by Gail Gregory and Martha Kalfelt. It's about improving student attention, engagement, and perseverance because uh, 
the, I think the perseverance got me. I think we need to be looking at grit and stamina and perseverance in this day and age. And it, it seems as though we want to start over, if you will, and start embedding that kind of thinking in, in this within our students. Um, Dan Fiegelson writes a book called Radical Listening. And it's about how to create and look at reading and writing conferences to reach all students. And he talks about uh, being really intentional when you conference with your students. It's not enough to just, you know, say, come and see me or walk around the classroom and help one student. It needs to be more consistent, more intentional, and there needs to be um, a goal at the beginning of a conference so that all students are aware of why why I'm coming to talk to you or why three of us are at this guided work table. Um, and I think the biggest thing for me was when I heard John Hattie speak um, a few years ago, and he talked about visible thinking, and that set me off right at, at that point. I thought, that's that's what it is. That's what it is. Um, of course, he writes several books, Visible Learning for Teachers, and it's about maximizing impact on learning. And that's what we have to do. That's what we are as teachers now, we do not, we are not owners of information and we pass it along to our students. We are now mentors, facilitators, role models. And our role has changed significantly. Um, and there's one more piece by Ron Richards uh, called Making Thinking Visible. And it's, again, it's about, that's by Ron Richard, Mark Church and Karen Morrison. And that is again, that whole piece that says, by making thinking visible, us teachers model to the students, we, we're going to get that engagement, stamina, grit, and perseverance that we're looking for. I think you're, you're definitely on to something, um, Irene, as we have to do a little bit more coaching perhaps than we've ever had to do before around um, sticking with the task or um, not not giving up on the first go around. Um, lear if learning is is meant to hurt our brains and it's meant to be hard and that's how we know we're learning. And if it's not hard, um, then something's not not quite right. And um, it's it's a we it's one of those things that I think um, maybe we never really had to teach before, and now we have to teach it. I kind of liken it to. Um, you know, oral language development. Historically, students, children were exposed to large amounts of oral language before arriving in schools. Um, and whether it was from um, this old fashioned invention uh, that was stuck on your wall, sometimes it was on a desk and it would ring and then people would answer it, but you couldn't actually leave the room because it was attached with a cord um, and so you heard purple, you heard people talking on the phone, you heard at least half of the conversation. Um, and then this other phenomenon used to happen where people would just show up to your house, sometimes uninvited, um, and they would sit and have coffee and visit and play games and all of these kinds of things. And, and those are not normal, frequent occurrences for most of the kiddos anymore. And so we're in a place where they're not coming with the background knowledge of oral language. 
So we need to teach them how to have a conversation. They're not coming to us with this natural grit and perseverance. We need to teach them how to, to do that. I want to add one other piece that's not there. I, I love your thought about the phone and the cord and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the third, third piece in that would be family dinner and the disappearance of we're all gathering at the table and what, what happened in your day and did you hear this one and those, those whole pieces. Sure, sometimes the Thanksgiving, the Christmas, uh, Easter dinner, big, big event dinners, uh, id, as we get ready to open Ramadan, etc. The you know Hanukkah feasts. All cultures have significant, big events, but we used to have supper time, and everybody came home for supper time, and then they went out and did their activities and events. But you had that conversation piece, and that's. Uh, missing as well i i want to add as well that uh, ron richard has come out with his what he thinks will be his last book um professionally but it's called the culture of thinking in action 10 mindsets to transform our teaching and students learning and that uh, released in june this past june and uh, certainly would recommend that one to our listeners uh, as well and a good one to add to your library at uh, Concordia College uh, as you're working with those students. Irene, for most of my careers, uh, English or language arts class was where any element of teaching to read, reading for understanding, reading levels, writing was taught most of my life. I don't remember being taught anything about reading or writing in any subject outside of language arts class as a student growing up through and graduating from high school myself. Certainly in, in a social studies, English combined teaching assignment, the lines get blurred and, and did get blurred a little bit more um, in my personal teaching career. And then early in my time as principal, I think it was about 2006, we had an opportunity for you to visit our high school during diploma exam week. And with our entire staff, CTS, phys ed, electives, all core, you introduced the concept and consideration of literacy across the curriculum. How did you come to that stage in your career? Why do you feel this is such important work, particularly in middle and high school environments? I think it always happened a little bit more in elementary. I think uh, part of this was the AC projects that Alberta had many years ago. And I was given the opportunity to uh, work with junior high school teachers and start really getting involved with, with the whole literacy across the curriculum component. Um, it also occurred to me that uh, as, as I went through my, my own teaching and reflected, I would teach language arts and social studies and realize that students would say, well, but we learned that in language arts and this is social studies. And I would say, yes, but you're using the same strategies over here. Um, and, and that clicked for me in terms of that. And of course, as time goes on and you start to refine your knowledge base, you start to realize, or at least I did, that when we have students in social studies, they are social scientists, they are historians, therefore they should write like, they should write as such. 
uh, when you are in science, you're a scientist. And you should be writing and reading as such. What would a scientist read and write? Um, we, we talk about math the same way. It's a fact that, okay, good morning, mathematicians, have a seat. I think it's important to involve students with those titles as well when they're in the classroom. So as I started thinking about it, it, it evolved into not so much all of these language arts writing skills you can apply in social studies. It had to become much more specific and it had to be what kind of reading and writing do you do as a social scientist? And that is how we immerse our students into that. There are some general best practices that we can all use in all of our subjects. But I think a lot of it is breaking that traditional role of reading, you know, reading and writing was always considered a language arts component. And, and the other subjects were always considered to be content, math being a whole different, different story. And so as I started you know, thinking about these things and coming to some conclusions, it just became clearer and clearer in terms of I cannot, I cannot teach you how to write an analytical paragraph about something in social studies, but the social studies teacher is the best person to do that. If we can immerse ourselves in our discipline, then I think that we will then uh, start to move into those areas. And by doing that, we're providing our students with a, a range of really strong skills in order to make uh, it make sense, make meaning, and to clearly communicate. Because I believe that's our goal from K to 12 is to create confident, competent readers and writers in the world. And then, you know, we can't control what students do after they graduate, but we want them to have that that self-confidence. I was just going to say one of my favorite um, literacy across the curriculum activities um, was going into a grade seven science classroom and they were uh, working on the chapter questions because of course they were. And so um, I said to him, what if I told you we can do these questions without actually reading the chapter? And they were like, what? Now, little did they know they were actually going to be reading the chapter, but when you sell it in that way, they're, they're in. And so, you know, we talked about some really simple things like textbook publishers are inherently linear. So the order that you're gonna find the answers are the order they're written in the text. And so if you get to answer three and you haven't yet answered number two, there's a good opportunity chance that you've missed that somewhere. We're going to go back. We're going to use things like headings. We're going to look at the bold words. We're going to look at sidebars. And so it was really reinforcing reading skills, skimming and scanning, looking at text features, understanding publishing. And they thought it was hilarious that they got to quote unquote, answer the questions without reading it although they totally read it. Um, and so some of those pieces are, are the ticket or, or you know, the entry point into having some of those conversations um, in another subject area to show how those skills transfer. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm reminded of that basic tenet that talks to us about uh, activating students' background knowledge period 
teaching and providing an opportunity for our students to think and read at the same time. And then, of course, the summary. What do I, what will I do with my students after their eyes have left the print? Because that's how we consolidate and remember what we just read. And I think it's not even arguable that those three pieces are part of that big plan, regardless of what you are reading. And of course, then we can get into specifics for science and so on and so forth. Um, and I think when and when I did work on my master's degree, I focused on teacher as model. And that was something else that really taught me a lot about showing and telling your students. And secondary people know exactly what their reading habits are, how they read, how they got to that point. They must share that knowledge with their students. They must be the model. And a clear model is the teacher totally involved from start to finish. So we don't involve our students when we do a teacher model. We explain our thinking. We talk about, here's the prediction that I'm going to make. Oh, look, my prediction didn't match because. And then we do it right to the end. And then we model, of course, more than once. We have to. But then we can work on that I do it, we do it, you do it component about gradual release of responsibility. So I really strongly believe in the first part of all of this work that uh, teacher as model is critical. And it's, it's, it's about making thinking visible. Here's how I do it. Watch and listen. That could be the cue. Watch and listen. Here's how I'm going to show you how, how I do that. It, it's, it's a beautiful piece. I've watched it in action and students pay attention. They're looking at you and they're listening to you. In addition to that um, modeling of practice as you put something up on the screen or they have a copy, you have a copy of a, a passage and you take them through that kind of work. I wonder how else do you think this conversation of a shared responsibility for literacy development within specialities, focuses of study, how does it impact the teacher? And, and in what ways do they maybe look at their assignments and their tests, even their handouts in a different way when there's a literacy lens over top of it? I think that we need to really be scrutinizing the kind of work that we give our students. And I will never forget a time when I was doing the Hound of the Baskervilles with grade nine. And I really thought I was being helpful by summarizing each chapter in modern day English. And so I worked many nights thinking I was doing the right thing. I gave the handout to the students thinking that I was helping them. And I found a lot of the handouts in the trash can at the end of the day. And that really hit me that obviously this is not, not useful, not helpful. There's no learning going on here. So that's the other piece where uh, I believe that it will become, I'm, I'm about precision and efficiency is part of our work as teachers. No one has said you have to mark till midnight every night or anything like that. So we need to be precise, deliberate, intentional. And we must involve our students in the work that we do. And I, I, uh, I'm seeing in the work I do 
that more teachers are finding it useful and they're seeing students more engaged. I, I've always recommended a notebook where the right side of the page is the note taking and the left side of the page is thinking so that we keep that structure throughout the semester or the year and um, students will note take from what they read, see or hear. On the right hand side and on the left hand side, the teacher gives students time to process whatever, whichever way they'd like, write, draw or tell what information was just looked at that day. That has students create their own notes, they create their own thinking and we give them time to process. It becomes more precisional, if you will, where the students are, are more involved with that. Um, you know, we, we tend to overdo helping our students. And I'm guilty of saying, give me that, I'll change it for you. And that doesn't, there's no learning going on. So the question I always ask, is there learning going on? And that's about the students. So it, it, it definitely changes what you do, gives you more confidence and it's, it's, um, it becomes more um, genuine and authentic across the board. And whenever I ask teachers, and I did have a few teachers who said, who've been trying the notebook, um, and they, she, one, one lady said, it really works well, the kids are into it. And I said, why do you think they are? And she said, without, I don't even know thinking about it, she said, because they're doing the work. So anytime we have students involved in their learning more than just the handout or whatever, the students enjoy doing it. They want to learn. Well, and I think that that running piece, who's doing the thinking, right? And and we don't want to save anyone from doing the thinking. No. And I think sometimes um, I, I clearly remember having a conversation with a cab driver at some point. Um, and I said I was in a junior high English teacher and they went off about how Shakespeare has nothing to do with their real life. And I can't believe my teacher made me read Shakespeare. And I said, yeah, however, you didn't read Shakespeare because we can't think of any other way to torture you. You read Shakespeare so that you can build a skill set of reading complex texts with unfamiliar language. And then you can transfer those skills to other text. And <laughs> Gabby was like, well, why wouldn't they tell us that? Fair, <laughs> um, you know, but so sometimes the, the why are we doing this? Here's why. Um, and so I'm not going to translate it for you, but I'm going to give you some skills that are going to help you figure this out. Um, and, and it's okay to put that thinking. Yeah. And why back. are we doing this? Why are we doing this? It's a really legitimate question. And it might not be said in the most polite way at times, but uh, I think it's very critical that a teacher share the purpose Students have a right to know where they're headed in a language that they understand. And that's why we have things like I statements or learning goals in student language. Um, that's why we help students translate uh, rubrics into their a language that they can collectively agree on. I think it's uh, the word that sticks out for me in the TQS document is uh, re with regard to curriculum is teachers must provide authentic learning through the appropriate use of the program of studies and authentic 
comes right out and it it doesn't matter what you are teaching it needs to be authentic that is connected to uh what students know i can go on about background knowledge forever but authentic authenticity is what creates that engagement and uh we're remiss if we just dive into the book and off we go uh we've got to ask students questions like what would you do if have you ever what would happen if what are all the things we know about and it's it's uh, you know there are many times when when we think that uh oh there's not enough time in the day i'd love to do that but and as far as i'm concerned um you you need to take the time less is more and there's a saying that says sometimes you have to go slow to go far and you we really need to consider that we want to go deep deeply not broadly mm-hmm. and i would rather have my students know two concepts very well thoroughly uh, rather than not know much about 42 concepts when you think about that irene do you have some you know for for teachers that might be listening that um aren't quote-unquote the English teacher because maybe we have people out there that aren't the English teacher listening Mm -hmm. um do you have some of those literacy strategies that are are those cross-curricular pieces you've talked about accessing background knowledge um you've talked about ensuring that we're engaging in authentic learning and, and being clear are there some other pieces that are kind of on your must do or should consider list uh, for that cross-curricular, cross-subject area literacy? Uh, there are a few pieces that really kind of fit fit all of us as teachers, including options, if you will. It, it's all about making sure our students are clear on the purpose of the lesson. Uh, why do why are we reading this? It's phys ed. Well, because we're trying to get a handle on the rules of such and such. Um, background knowledge, activating it, not giving it to students, but activating what their brains are going to be thinking about through good questioning skills is something really critical. And you can have good questioning skills throughout all the subjects uh, when when you're asking students things. I think the most important question on earth is, how do you know that? And that's something we want to consider with, with everything we do. When a student makes a comment about something in content, immediately you need to say, how do you know that? What makes you think so? Where did, Where is your evidence? Evidence is critical. So that's how we're bringing our students in. I think that uh, think and read at the same time is something that's going to con- to further that learning. And so it isn't a matter of having a handout with blank filling in blanks in it. It's about while you read, I want you to think about, and that's the part that you would in- inject in terms of context and ask students to do that while they are learning. And I, again, sticky notes are an incredible strategy that people can use. They can, and you wouldn't go overboard. You would say, you need two sticky notes while you read, I want you to put a sticky in two different places that reminds you of something and um, and write, put it right on the print and on the sticky note, jot down what it reminds you of. Because afterwards, we're going to debrief whether we write, draw, or tell. And again, the last piece is that summary component. 
that says you're going to consolidate what you know. And what an opportunity to go to your, the thinking side of your notebook and say, draw a picture of what we just looked at. Draw a picture of the concept. Uh, write three words that you need to help to remember, help you to remember the concept. And so summary is that whole whole piece. Those are pieces that fit all across the board. Did you tell your students why we're doing this? Did you uh, start working on activation of background knowledge? And, and background knowledge could even be, what did we do yesterday about this? And I believe that, um, yeah, that and students need to learn how to note-take. And that's that further involvement piece and use your work for something like a formative assessment notebook exam or quiz or something like that. Those kinds of pieces fit across the board, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I, I really like and don't want to lose sight of the suggestion with the notebook or uh, even whatever you use to organize your thinking. And you were talking about, okay, you put your hard notes down on the right side, put your thinking on the left side. And you've mentioned several times, let's make our thinking visible. And as you're discussing this, I, I thought we definitely need to include a note in the blog post of this site, of, of this, this conversation on our ARPDC website that will include a link to the recording and, and um, the book titles that we talk about. But I think I will include in here a Project Zero link from Harvard's uh, uh, thinking routines, which is Ron Richards' uh, um, work captured in there, where you see all the different activities. You know, I used to think, but now I think. Mm -hmm. You know, in a social studies class, here's some piece we want you to read. Before you read it, what are your thoughts about? Jot those down. Okay, now let's take a read here. Now that we've read this, I used to think, but now I think. Put that on the left side. That's your, that's your thinking piece. That's pulling that that out. There, but there are so many. You know, the stop, look, listens. Um, lots of lots of different. The three whys. True. This is true for who. That's another thinking routine on that site, right? Like this is true for, but but there's these other people over here that don't see that as true. Why, Charlie? I think it's really important to, to point out um, that there's more content on the site than you will make use of. Oh, we, yeah. don't, we don't, we don't just, you know, use them all. Um, it's okay to pick a handful of routines that you're going to use all year long or all semester long um, so that your kids become familiar with it because that's the whole idea of a routine. A routine isn't something we do one time and, and then do a new one. <laughs> um, it's meant to be part of your learning, learning process. And the other piece is um, the, your students or you yourself, because we've all experienced these when, you know, a facilitator or someone, you know, pulls one of these out as part of the learning, that it's kind of uncomfortable and it's uh, disrupts the flow because we're not used to pausing and thinking about our thinking mm -hmm. and we're not used to digging into some of those areas that these thinking routines ask us to do. And so it will not be a natural fit for your students to just, you know, be successful off the hop with these. Um, it takes time. There will be pushback. 
because it is an uncomfortable space, depending on the level of this kind of work that they've done. Um, and it's not something that you just like throw up there and just be like, just read it and do it. There needs to be a level of direct instruction. There needs to be a level of coaching. There needs to be some practicing in this because modeling, no one, modeling right? No one builds a routine by reading a set of instructions off a piece of paper. And or a so, website or a book or, 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 right. So like, it's, we, we want to think that some of this stuff is implied in our conversations, but we all know what happens when we make assumptions. And so, you know, do not do all 50, whatever routines on the site. That is insane. Pick and one it, to start with and get good at it. Yeah. Use the filters about, at the bottom of the page. Yeah. It's about creating habits of mind and that's what routines are good for. And teachers, need to create their own habits of mind that resonate with the students and then students have habits of mind. So being the teacher being a good questioner in a discussion or a conversation will show students this is how we talk to each other. Um, and, and it's very much about don't bite off more than you can chew Take one or two and work on them. And if you need to modify them, do the, do so and then carry on. And then you're ready to add another layer to the work that you do. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important uh, point that you're making. You know, Part of that is because I have, I think, the rest of my life going to be heavily committed to the notion of tiny habits, but building something that the students have the motivation to do and the ability to do and experience some success. And basically all of this is the same as developing any muscle in the body, right? We, our brain is a muscle. Our, our ability to visually, our ability to think is something that we have to work at. And so we, we start tiny and uh, do this little bit, but give enough time for it to succeed yeah. and then stretch the muscle a little bit, you know, People use rigor. Uh, sometimes I think it's a princess bride word. No, you keep using that word. I do not <laughs> think it means what you think it means. But the idea of a little bit of stress, right? But it, it's important because that stresses the muscle. And then you have to give an opportunity for that to rest and recover and then stress that muscle again a little bit more. Yep. And so there needs to be a no, a no fault zone in this whole process of letting students explore their thinking and uh, you know like you're not going to get penalized for thinking you you will penalize yourself if you don't think just because that muscle won't grow it's like mm -hmm. one push-up every time you do this or that will get you stronger uh but it makes and, me and think that's of, the central um, piece here go it makes me think of uh Garfield Jenny Newman's work um, and he promotes the idea of thought books in mm -hmm. that throughout the course of a unit of study or whatever it is that students are recording their thinking and how their thinking has changed with new learning and so the assessment piece isn't did you get the answer right or wrong the assessment part comes from the articulation of the change in thought and evidence right and so and that shifts our work so you can't be the sage on the stage if we're using 
You know, if we're shifting and talking about this habits of mind, we can't be the person that's hogging the mic. Other people have to share their thoughts and interpretations and connections and, and all of those things as well. I always, uh, I tell my students and I tell teachers that I work with that a good sequence of teaching to follow is that you provide an explanation, a model and a demonstration of the skill. Then you provide time for guided practice. And then you ask your students to apply what they have learned to uh, another situation. And that's why I love performance assessments because you teach your unit and then you ask your students to apply what they have learned from your teaching and you're working with them to an unseen situation. And so it's always about direct instruction, ex explanation model, guided practice on pieces that are, you know, small, but I'm, my point is to make you practice that concept. So when you do use it for application, whether it's an exam or whatever it is, that you will understand how to do that because you've practiced it. And that's why we give the one mark at the end of, of, a, of an assignment rather than mark throughout, because we want to, we must provide our students with time to practice and use our feedback to reach more success as we go. And guided practice is where you get to be the coach. This is your time where you can go and coach your students as they are working on, on an idea. We're gonna shift gears slightly, but maybe not that far, because um, it's all related, really. So Irene, how do you think we can bring reading joy into our classrooms and schools? Because I'm hearing from folks, it's people, that, um, I mean, we always struggled with getting kids to read, but it's like- And adults. And adults. Mm -hmm. um, but it feels like it's hit another level a little bit, which is all part of, I think, that perseverance and that grit conversation that we were having earlier, because mm -hmm. it's actually hard work to sustain focus on a text. Um, but yeah, what are your thoughts about I, I believe joy. that part of this is, of course, you, the role model. Um, but I also believe that we should be letting students know that it's okay to read anything they want and that it doesn't mean you must read a romantic novel or else you're not reading. And I think that that component uh, of making sure students know that people read, some people say they don't read. Some teachers have said to me that they don't really read. And I say, so um, do you like sports? And they go, oh, well, yeah, I follow, you know. And I think, well, then you're reading statistics and things like that then, which is reading. And we need to get rid of the notion that reading is a big, huge novel, very boring. I'm not interested in it, but I have to do it much as I don't want to. So when I offer silent reading for students, it's about uh, you can read, well, Along with the telephone, we had yellow pages. And um, <laughs> I, I uh, want to read the yellow pages, go ahead. You'd like to read comics, go ahead. We've got to get rid of that notion of this is what silent reading is. And if you aren't reading a romantic novel, well, then you're just hooped. And um, I think that we need to have language-rich 
classrooms, a magazine rack full of science magazines, a magazine rack perhaps in social studies with Maclean's at time. Uh, we need to uh, have teachers in subject areas reading snippets to their students out loud that look what I, I discovered this on the news today and I'm just going to read you the article and we'll have a bit of a conversation about it. So we need to show our students in by way of modeling that reading is everywhere and that you you choose what you like to read. And, and if you asked me to read a fantasy, I would really struggle with that. If you asked me to read a good mystery, I'm in. So I think it's about that school-wide modeling of. And yes, we can have contests and book displays. I'm not against that at all. But we need to have all of us showing our students that, that any kind of reading is, is a good thing. And I'm, I'm very intrigued uh, with even things like having the students guess who the teacher is that's holding up that book. So who's reading this kind of a book? Uh, just those school-wide pieces that touch on reading and have a reading month or a reading week or a reading, you know, those school-wide pieces are good. But then it comes from there, it comes right down to the teachers throughout modeling their reading and what they read having switching classrooms for 10 minutes and I'm going to read what I like in the physical class and you're going to read what you like. Um, the, just the notion that it is not this heavy duty, oh no, I have to do this because teacher said we want to provide, get rid of some of those old um, stereotypes that I know I certainly grew up with. You know, you, you mentioned that and I found myself thinking, uh, if, if I had a social studies classroom again, I suspect that I would be looking to gather those Fedor travel guide books, particularly for every country we're going to touch on over the course of the yeah. year or the coming years. Oh, you want to read a little bit about this country, this country? Because as they look in there at the travel, they're automatically being exposed to historical sites and cultural yeah. sites and things mm -hmm. of that nature that pick your curiosity um i you know you go to hawaii where do you you go to honolulu where's one place you're gonna go pearl harbor why okay boom boom uh now we're talking a little bit of history social studies why this happened how this happened what's the, the whole piece yeah so i think that be in my classroom library as a social yeah. studies teacher and i have seen science teachers with the magazine rack circular in the classroom with Omni and Scientific American and those kinds of magazines for students to go to and, and have a read if they want. So I, I do think it's a to, to change things, if you will, or to shift that thinking. It's incumbent upon all of us to be those models of reading. I don't read this, but I read statistics. I game, but I have to read the instruction books for that. And I have to figure out what's going on because some games make me be strategic. So I have to do that thinking. And if, if we can all say that this is what we need to do and, and sort of be a gigantic role model in the, in the whole school, I think that's going to do some, some changing. Um, whenever I had parents going away and they would say, what can you give him worksheets while well, he's gone? And I have always suggested read have your child read for 
20 minutes or as much as they can handle every day and then ask them to summarize what did you read about today and what did you read about now today and and just it's a simple thing to do and it's uh i think it's very powerful yeah particularly if they're driving i think i would right away ask well how are you getting there while we're driving how long mm -hmm. 11 hours one way okay read yeah well, he gets motion sick dramamine and then read Yes. <laughs> I was going to say audiobook, but sure, that works well, too. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and for the whole family to have a an audiobook on it, there's there's it that's a double-edged sword a little bit. We love to listen to audiobooks as we drive, but it does reduce conversation unless you have a sort of the open door policy to can you press pause? I want to ask about and and yeah. you know, something that you've heard in the book that's great too. But yeah, that definitely, that's a that's a good, yeah. good suggestion. And there's the difference in in the way it used to be to now. Uh, back in the day, uh, when we traveled, my father insisted that we look, look mm. at the bird, look at the river, look at the mountain, um, and it's it's not like that anymore. But uh, I sure taught me to be observant about things when I'm traveling. I'm always looking around, skyline, whatever. I think it's so. I think it might still be like that uh, because Chana consistently, my wife consistently says to me, "Stop looking at that. You're driving." Okay, <laughs> within reason. <laughs> or I'm saying, "Hey, look, we're on we're on the road to the sun right now. Would you please just keep your eye on the road? Mm -hmm. Don't mm -hmm. the road to Hana? Look at that. Look at that. Yeah, no, bad idea. Okay." Yeah. But that that's the piece. Stop, look, listen. Oh, I love it. Wonderful. Uh Irene, do you do you have any other um pearls of wisdom that you would like to leave? Let's say for um first uh, the group of people who are currently thinking about uh, education or have just gone into their education program about being a lifelong reader and maybe something for the somebody who's been in 10, 15, 20 to give them a little, here's an energy energizer boost. You've got 10, 15, 20 ahead of you. This is why you need to be a person, uh, a, a reading person, a reading thinking person. Uh, well, I think for, for students who are entering the, 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 the career, uh, we need to understand that teaching is not for the faint of heart. And that to be a lifelong learner is not just a title or an in sort of jingle. This is very serious, critical work. And the re one of the best ways you can be a lifelong learner is by reading and keeping up with things. Um, remember to think of the students first all the time. How will I make them work hard? How will I send them away being brain tired, but also having learned something? And when I think about veteran teachers, I think one of my big pieces of late has been to, um, for all subjects, is to learn how to be a good questioner and learn to have the kids talk more than you do, set up some protocols, set up uh, group protocols with rules, make sure students know why they're meeting. But I'm, I, as I was thinking about the importance of oral language a while ago, it's really like if you if you can become that adept at questioning, 
it would be like you being the conductor of an orchestra. You're not talking, but you're saying, Charlie, what do you think of Rick's answer? Can you say that in a different way? Um, can you talk to us about what that answer reminds you of? And so you're pointing and doing and you're orchestrating um, this orchestra called your, your classroom of students. I think that it's always possible to uh, spice up your work, if you will, to really take a deep, hard look at new strategies and new developments and say, would this work for me? And to really make an effort to make that a habit of mind in your work. Always, what should I stop doing? What should I start doing? And what do I like that I should continue doing? Because it really works. Thank you very much for that. Appreciate the, appreciate that a great deal. I appreciate this entire conversation today. Uh, um, where we have the privilege, Charlie and I both, of working with Irene on lots of different projects uh, as we work together with the ARPDC and just felt strongly that you'd be able to provide some great food for thought for people at all stages of their educational career. And quite honestly, every parent in the world would be well blessed <laughs> by taking a listen to this and thinking and checking out the the um, Ron Richards' work for their conversations with their kids. You want the assurance that your sons and daughters, grandsons and granddaughters, nieces and nephews are learning. Engage in thinking routine conversations yes. with them because that will let you see what they know infinitely better than any diploma exam or mm -hmm. PAT could possibly achieve. Yes. So, ladies and gentlemen, we are recording this on November 27th. This will air in two weeks, um, which will put us right in the middle of uh, December, uh, coming into Hanukkah for our Jewish uh, friends in the world and the Christmas holiday season for others. And we do wish you all the best. We will be putting one more episode out just before Christmas in addition to this one from Irene. And then we'll be back with you in the new year. We, once again, we thank you, Irene. We thank uh, and invite you to uh, share the podcast with all of your students at Concordia and uh, invite them to subscribe and uh, take, uh, take care, everybody. Enjoy. <laughs>